Our New Testament reading comes from the book of Revelation. Then I saw another portent in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had conquered the beast in its image, in the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your judgments have been revealed. After this I looked, and the temple of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, robed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes across their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were ended. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God, we do come to you this morning uh, mindful once again of darkness and injustice in the world as we weep with our neighbors in Pittsburgh and ask for your mercy upon them. We also acknowledge that as we live in this world uh, that is marked by tragedy and injustice, it is often very difficult to believe that you are both merciful and just. 
And so we ask that you would help us now as we sit with your scriptures to hear your voice, enable us to receive your light and truth, uh, and by the grace of your spirit, would you help us turn toward you in repentance and trust and hope and adoration as we behold the the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. It is finished, Jesus said from the cross, just before he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is done, says the seventh angel in Revelation, who pours out the seventh and final plague, with which John says, the wrath of God is ended. As we continue our book tour of Revelation and we come to this section that depicts God's final judgment on humanity and creation, we're reminded that the last word on judgment is a word we've heard before. Not in the thunderous voice of God the heavenly judge, but in the frail human voice of Jesus, the judge judged in our place. We're reminded by this juxtaposition of words that we live, so to speak, between the lightning and the thunder, between the it is finished, Christ has died, and the it is done, Christ will come again. And John's vision helps us appreciate that if we are to speak fruitfully about God's judgment, we must see these two moments as fundamentally connected to each other and also to our own experience of life in the world. We must see them as connected to each other, lest we think that God's last judgment is somehow something other than God's first judgment in the cross and the empty tomb, carried out to completion and writ large across all of God's creation. And we must see these two moments as connected to our own experience of life in the world, lest we run off into the land of abstraction where so many of us have gone before. And that's the place where we get stuck in our theoretical questions, say about how could a God of love also be a God who judges, right? These theoretical questions that begin to dominate our thinking uh, in such a way that we become unable or perhaps unwilling to hear what the Bible actually does say about God's judgment. That it's actually good news for humanity and for the earth. That it's something we desperately need, individually and collectively. And that it's not ultimately about a cranky, capricious God doing some act of doling out punishment for people he doesn't like. But it's about our faithful God's commitment to establishing the justice on earth that we so long for. And I'll confess that I am one who can become too prone to that sort of abstraction. I don't like thinking about God's judgment. I certainly don't like talking about it publicly because it feels like a powder keg, right? And standing up here talking about it to all of you feels sort of like playing with matches around the powder keg. How can you possibly speak about such a a delicate and difficult topic such as this without upsetting or offending someone in the room, if not everyone in the room? Um, But here's the thing I've been realizing more and more as I've reflected on this topic Uh, especially over this last week, but over the last few weeks, really, this topic of God's judgment, 
and my own desire to avoid it. I think in many cases, our aversion to thinking about God as judge is simply evidence of our privilege in action. There's been a lot written in recent years about those who choose to stay out of politics, right? Um, and that being a function of privilege. You know, it's only for those, those for whom the status quo is working, who experience politics as some sort of elective that we're free to choose to either opt in or out, right? And there's a similar dynamic at play, I think, in the way we think about God's judgment and our thinking and speaking about God. It's only, who those, it's only those who don't feel the need of God's judgment who feel free to avoid it or explain it away. And the truth is that we don't even really realize how much our privilege shapes the way we think about God because privilege is like that piece of toilet paper stuck to your shoe. The one who has it is always the last one to see it, right? And for most of us, the way that we think and speak about God, especially with respect to God's judgment, is thoroughly shaped by our experience of living profoundly privileged lives. Just think about it. Only those who live in relative safety and freedom from unjust oppression have the luxury of even considering the possibility that God could be our loving and powerful Father and yet somehow not display that love and power as the just judge who rescues us from our enemies. And only those who live with relative pride as a result of having made ostensibly decent life choices have the luxury of considering the possibility that God's love and care for me could somehow not go hand in hand with God's rescuing me from myself and calling me away from my own capacity for evil and harm according to his judgment and not my own. The early Christians to whom John wrote this book of Revelation, they, they did not know such privilege. They lived daily with the real threat of Roman persecution. They saw members of their own congregation martyred for the faith. And they felt within themselves that strong temptation, daily probably, to give in to the threat of Rome and to forfeit their allegiance to Jesus. And so they didn't have the luxury of really even being allowed to grow sleepily unaware of the battle between good and evil raging in their own hearts and raging in the systems of power and the structures of the world around them. They longed for justice. They longed for justice. They yearned for God's judgment, not Rome's, to win the day and to be visible in their world. And this vision of God's judgment that we get in Revelation is originally given for them. It's given for them. It's not a white paper written for people sitting in leather armchairs and ivory towers contemplating philosophical abstractions about how God could be just in punishing some and rewarding others or in how God's judgments relate logically to God's mercy or goodness or love. It's not that. It's also not a street preacher's fire and brimstone sermon intended to frighten sinners with the wrath of God in order to get them to turn from their evil ways. It's not that at all. It's not John's audience. Revelation is a personal, pastoral word of encouragement to suffering saints who are being brutalized and bullied by Rome 
who are being tempted to cry uncle and renounce their faith and give up the way of Jesus in order to save their own lives. And this vision that we get, it's this one of God's coming judgment that is meant to say to God's people, be encouraged and do not lose heart. God wins. The empire loses. Don't be intimidated by their bullying, even if they threaten your life, because God is much bigger and much stronger than Rome, and when he comes as judge, he's going to open up a can of you-know-what on the bullies, and you need to know that if you're going to persist in faithfulness. You will be vindicated in the end. That's what the vision is intended to communicate. That's the context into which John writes this section of Revelation in which he depicts God's final and definitive judgment coming upon humanity and the earth. So what is the vision? Just a quick overview of this section of the book. Well, here we just read chapter 15, and that's where we see this vision of God's people who have persevered in faith, right? They've gathered in God's throne room beside or maybe even upon this uh, fiery sea of glass, and they're singing praises to God. This song of Moses and the Lamb, it's reminiscent of uh, the song in Deuteronomy 32, a song of deliverance of God's people as they've been planted in a dangerous place, this awesome reality that they are both delivered and endangered. And there's this moment as they're gathered in the throne room when these seven angels, they come out of God's temple with seven plagues that are going to bring an end to the wrath of God, we're told. And they're given these seven bowls full of God's wrath that they're going to have to pour out on the earth to cleanse it before anybody can go into God's temple. That's the picture we get in the passage that we just read. And if we keep reading into the following chapters, we get this, again, this kind of wild and crazy sequence of events, where in chapter 16, we see the seven angels pour out the seven bowls with the seven plagues, and we get another cycle of seven, like the seals, like the trumpets that we've already seen. And once again, it's another retelling of the Exodus story with all of the plagues where we see God display his power over creation in order to call the inhabitants of the earth to repentance. And once again, we see all the inhabitants of the earth refusing to yield. And then finally, after the sixth bowl, with the sixth plague is poured out, what we see is that the battle scene is finally set. It's like there's this line drawn in the sand, and you've got the dragon that we've met before and the beasts. Uh, They have lured all the kings of the earth to this place, Armageddon, famous name, right? It's a battlefield, and they've lured them all there, and it's going to be like the Alamo. It's going to be like the last stand of the earth uh, holding down the fort against the coming reign of God, the battle against the creator for the creation. And so that's the scene. It's really dramatic and wild. And then we get this moment where the seventh angel pours the seventh bowl into the air and declares, it is done. And everything begins to fall apart. Um, a new villain appears. It's this prostitute riding a beast, and we learn that she is Rome, um, codenamed Babylon. 
And so there she is, like this fourth great enemy figure, and then all of a sudden the beast turns and devours her, and she dies, and all the kings and the merchants of the earth are like sad at her funeral because she was their source of pleasure. And then Rome falls, and there's this massive battle, and this rider comes and defeats the armies, and beasts are thrown into the fire, and all this stuff. It's just like, you know, no one's spared. It's this massive battle scene. And so there's a lot there. Um, the point, it is, it is the sweeping total victory of God over evil. The whole stage is set back in chapter 12 where it said the time had come for the things that destroy the earth to be destroyed. And so the king of the earth comes to eradicate the evil that threatens creation and his victory is complete. It's, it's hard to know what to do with some of this, but I think if we're going to know anything about anything about what to do with this, we have to remember what Revelation is, right? It's not a predictive prophecy about how things are going to play out in the future in some like linear or literal way. It's an apocalyptic portrayal of the current situation of John's parishioners that he's writing to. He's wanting them to understand their present situation through this portrayal of the way things are so that they will be able to understand and navigate their own experience of suffering in light of the real victory of Christ, which is actually accomplished, not yet visible. And so the way that we receive this scripture for us today must take into account what it is and what it was intended to do among God's people in the first place. And so if we can just get out of our heads a little bit, I think, and get beyond our abstractions, what we'll find is that this God who wins, this God who conquers evil and who establishes justice on the earth, this God who judges humanity and all creation and justice is actually the God that you and I so desperately need as well. This isn't only what the early Christians suffering Roman persecution needed to hear. This is, in our own way, what we need to hear as well. Because only God the just judge can be the God who ultimately puts right all that is wrong in us and around us in the world. And more than that, it's really only when we begin to entrust ourselves and our neighbors to God's judgment, not our own, but God's, that we can really begin to take up our calling in Christ to love our neighbors as ourselves and to do what Jesus says, which is do not judge, right? Lest you yourselves be judged. Miroslav Volf is a professor of public theology at Yale who grew up in war-torn Croatia and he's done a lot of work in the theology of reconciliation and forgiveness. And he actually says that knowing God as judge is actually essential for us in our work of reconciliation and forgiveness. Because it's only when we begin to believe that we can actually trust God to take care of it. It's only when we believe we can actually trust God to render just judgment that we are freed to not play the judge but instead to love our neighbor, to love our enemy, to extend forgiveness, to pursue relationship. Only 
when God is the just judge, does any of that forgiving, reconciling work make any moral sense at all? Because otherwise, forgiveness would just be to allow injustice and evil to persist unchecked. I don't understand that as intuitively as many Christians around the world do. Uh, and, and the reason is because I live a remarkably priv- privileged life. Uh, I'm just reflecting on this. I mean, there's just so many ways that the status quo works for me on, on any given day. And as a result, I can end up sleepwalking through life just largely unaware of injustice all around me, even justice that I myself am perpetuating, right? I can be unaware of the forgiveness that others have to extend toward me in in order to remain in relationship with me. I can be completely asleep to the ways in which God has to extend forgiveness toward me in order to welcome me into his family. And I can be blind to so much of the brokenness that I could be engaging in myself or in relationships or in the world as this agent of God's reconciling work and peace in Christ. And a telling indicator, like how do I know when I'm asleep or how do you know when you're asleep to these things? I think a telling indicator that we're falling asleep to these things is that our cries of how long grow fewer and farther between. You know that cry? The cry of the psalmist, the one that comes up over and over and over through the story of the scriptures as we hear God's people, as they walk through the world and through the wilderness, they cry, how long, O Lord? How long? Will you forget me forever? Will you answer my prayer? Will you bring your kingdom in this place? How long, O Lord? When you aren't crying, how long? You aren't yearning for God the just judge to come and set things right. And in those moments when we're not yearning for God the just judge to come and set things right, we can start thinking in some really unhelpful directions. Like we can start thinking, you know, maybe a God who would judge isn't as just as I am. Because, you know, I would judge things differently. Or maybe the God who extends mercy uh, that, we, that we see, maybe, maybe God isn't as merciful as I am. Uh, maybe there are people that I imagine God being harsh with that maybe I don't want to be harsh with. Um, and maybe there's a lot I imagine about God and how he deals with people that's not actually real, but that I am thinking these thoughts on my own. And rather than crying out how long, I'm sitting in my armchair in my ivory tower and I'm contemplating things and allowing these questions to become abstracted or to become uh, taking on a life of their own rather than arising where they come from, which is out of the suffering of real people in the real world. God's judgment and his justice are the answers to his people's cries, how long? And it's his answer of now. My kingdom come in Christ. And this vision that we get here in Revelation, it doesn't let us stay sleepy if we're going to let this actually address where we are. This vision wakes us up to the reality of this God who rules over the earth and he says, all the nations come and worship before you, O God, for your judgments have been revealed. It's this vision that draws us into the company of God's people who are gathered in the throne room of God 
by this fiery sea of glass, which is a baptismal image of those who've passed through the waters of judgment, right? Who've come into the very presence of God, who are worshiping the Lamb, the one that John the Baptist said is the one even greater than he who would come baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Here they are in the fiery, glassy sea, standing in the presence of God as those who've been brought through the waters of judgment in the ark of the grace of the Lamb, and they're standing before the throne of God, even in the midst of danger, and they're singing praise. That's the image that John wants for his people to see themselves, even as they stand with their feet planted on the soil of the Roman Empire. That they stand at the same time in the very presence of God who brings them through the waters. And he's saying the God who is bringing his kingdom on earth is the God who has called you to himself. The one who has made you conquerors, not by violence, but through the blood of the Lamb. Can you imagine yourself in that throne room with the saints, with the multitude? Can you see yourself as one baptized into this family of God, brought with Jesus through that passageway of judgment and into the place of peace? Can you see yourself there? That's your home. And can you see that because that is your home, you are free? to love God and to love your neighbor, to entrust yourself to his just judgment, to entrust your neighbor to his just judgment because you see the one who is coming again as judge is none other than the one who was judged in our place. Jesus, the one who cried out, it is finished and endured the end of the wrath of God. Jesus, this lamb who was slain. Jesus, this one who's made us conquerors of evil. Why do I struggle with the idea of God's judgment? It's because I forget that the one who's coming to judge the world, the living and the dead, is the one who was judged in our place the one who leveraged all of his privilege and all of his power and all of his life to liberate us from evil and not to crush us with it. The Christ who died and is risen is the Christ who will come again and the justice and mercy displayed at the cross is the justice and mercy that will flood the earth. What would happen if you and I awakened to his justice and his mercy afresh today? And if that, if that sense of his presence, if that, our being in his presence in that fiery sea, drawn through the waters of judgment, were to become this real vibrant image in our life that liberated us to love God and love neighbor freely, what would change about you this week? What would change about the way you worshiped God? What would change about the way you inhabited your relationships or your workplace or the way that you would talk with your children or your spouse or your neighbors? The judgment of God is the good news that we actually need because it is God the just judge who sets us right, sets the world right, and calls us to entrust our own lives and the lives of our neighbors to him 
And as he does that, he reminds us that the one who calls us is faithful and he will bring on earth this kingdom of justice that is in heaven now and will one day be writ large across the face of all creation. That is our hope. Let's pray. Our God, we ask that you would give us grace to behold the glory of Christ. Pray that you would free us from the ways in which we imagine ourselves to understand you or to conceive of what you ought to do or who you ought to be or even that we've got you figured out and even what you are. But God, would you, would you liberate us from ourselves? Would you open our eyes and shine your light here that we may behold ourselves even more realistically and more humbly and that we may recognize the great mystery that you look upon your world in love and that this judge who comes, who John portrays, is also the one who stretched out his arms on the hardwood of the cross to embrace a sinful world, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Give us hope and faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.